Hey mamas, it's Victoria with Naptime Chats. I got the baby monitor turned all the way up, a load of laundry turned on, and I'm ready to put that hustle in my bustle until my little one wakes up. Or maybe I really just have my feet up on the couch and I'm tuning in to some crappy reality TV show. Either way, I'm making this nap time worth it. Hello and welcome to my little nap time chats because Madison just went down for a nap so you might hear her scream in a second. Who knows? But I have one of my girls from college from, you know, when we graduated like two years ago because we're so young. Let's go on to talk about her, I think, a really cool job and what she's doing is preserving our history for the future. And I think that's amazing. Um, so Latoya, what do you do? So right now I'm an archivist, um, and so I work for the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library and Museum. It's a part of the National Archives and Records Administration, but I do have to say everything that I say on the podcast is of my own opinion and does it, it in no way represents Jimmy Carter or my job. <laughs> we do not have a government representative. We have you today, yes. <laughs> and so for those who might not know, what is an archivist? So when you're an archivist, you have to get archivist. an MLIS. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no problem. You have to get an MLIS, so um, a Master's of Library and Information Science. And so with the degree, um, it, it works for librarians and archivists. So people sometimes don't know what archivists do. And so with archivists, we preserve um, materials of enduring value. So usually it's something historical. Um, we work in the background as an archivist, usually in the background, everywhere you look, like each president has an archives team. Um, the newscast has an archive, like an archivist in the background working in, like on broadcasts and different things like with the news footage. And so there's always someone in the background working, but we just um, preserve materials of historical and enduring value. And hopefully they'll be here for the next generation. So how does the preservation look? Because I'm sure a uh, hundred years ago, it probably looked a lot different than even 20 years ago, than even when we were in undergrad and we had dial-up internet, I think. I mean, I don't even know, if, like, we had instant messenger in our dorm. So, like, now we're at the speed of Zooming for everything. Uh, what does, like, can you walk us through, like, a brief history of, like, how archives have been preserved and where we are now? So, um, are you talking about the National Archives in general or just, like, archives in the United States? Archives and just yeah, just general in the okay. United States. Yeah, that's sorry. I was yes. like, I can give you a dissertation. Which country now? But, uh, <laughs> I love. Yeah. So, um, right. Well, I can give you some trends lately. So, um, archives um, have always been around, but um, they haven't always been as inclusive as institutions. So, when we look at history, history can sometimes be one-sided, where certain groups' stories get preserved, but not everyone's groups. Uh, all kind stories of, get preserved. Like so, to what? give you an example. To give an example, when I was in Texas working um, in community archives, which is a whole interesting topic, um, mm. community archives preserves the um, histories of communities who are underrepresented in history. Mm. So mm. that was kind of a fun thing. So I worked in social justice and community archives for over 10 years before I took this job. Mm -hmm. And it was a really um, rewarding experience. But um, when you're working in a... Um, like, you know, doing community archives, you are making sure that the space is open for everyone, that everyone's history is included. So to give an example, like the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So you have um, state sides, people who um, were slave owners, mm -hmm. those who are enslaved, mm -hmm. and other groups who are around who are all reacting to the same event. And mm -hmm. so the way we remember that event is called collective memory. Mm 
-hmm. And so how different communities um, remember an event is collective memory. So each different group has a different collective memory, but they all together encompass that story. Mm -hmm. And so my job is just to make sure I'm collecting all those bits and that everyone's um, perspectives are being included. But um, over the last few years, I've been focusing on making sure that perspectives that are missing entirely that weren't included at all Mm-hmm. or kind of hidden history mm-hmm. was unearthed. So that's what I've been doing um, since like, you know, I would say for the last like 11 years. And that has to be really empowering and encouraging and also um, humbling, I would assume, to be able to take the stories and give them a voice, especially for communities that did not have a voice in the past. Right. Right. Especially with women's stories. And um, I can't tell you how many times I would just uh, work and someone would bring me a box of things that they found in an attic. And mm. so um, you have to use like genealogical skills to try to figure out who these people were in the photographs and location skills, like, you know, try to figure out where they were. Because sometimes I would receive boxes of nameless folks. And then mm-hmm. you have to try to figure out, it's almost like being a historical detective. Yeah. Like where... Um, like, okay, who is this lady? Like, is there any, are there any context clues in the photo to tell me who she is or what her story is, that sort of thing. So it's just, it's an interesting, um, you have a lot of different skill sets that you use yeah. to kind of preserve these stories. So in addition to being an archivist, I also teach the genealogy classes too, um, mm. which helped me with my job as an archivist. So <laughs> that's, to me, it's just fascinating. Um, to just think of you get a random box and then how long would it say you got this picture about the mm-hmm. average so i'm sure some um items take longer than others but about how long is it the discovery to figure out what's going on in that photo or item it could be anywhere from like 30 minutes sometimes if mm-hmm. it's something that's um or maybe you might can detect some faint ink in the back or like mm-hmm. maybe a location to several days sometimes months to figure out who people are and what like what, like, what is this story? Who are these people? So there are different wow. like materials that you can use to kind of piece together the stories, but it's a lot of fun. Um, very interesting. And I always feel excited when I figure out like who someone is. It's like, I know her now, you know? Yes. <laughs> I think that's amazing. And especially, so now you're working more at the national level, correct? Yes. Um, so community, you said community would be more the under, making sure the whole community had their story told make bringing out the underrepresented communities Mm -hmm. but at the national level how does that look any different or what does that look like it's really different actually um so here i focus on jimmy carter's life at the carter presidential library museum so Mm -hmm. um learned a lot about farming because he was a farmer before he was governor and um Mm -hmm. the family history and uh cotton fields which is you know something that we'll learn in community archives, but just more in detail because he had a a very humble upbringing Mm -hmm. um, with being a farmer. Um, They were pretty well off in the area though, just a, you know, as a tidbit, but like, you know, just a kind of like, you know, humble origins is, you know, with farming. It wasn't and, like um, banking and oil. It was farming. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he was not a Rockefeller, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting, um, you know, family history. So, um, and we've just focused on the presidency itself because the, we're attached to the Carter Center, which is totally separate from us. So the mm. Carter Center is a nonprofit and they focus on like waging, um, I'm about to mess up their mission statement. I'm sorry, Carter Center. <laughs> but um, <laughs> fighting for justice and waging mm-hmm. peace and, um, you know, Habitat for Humanity. Um, mm-hmm. They focus on his life today. And then we focus on just his presidency. So we just focus on, like, the governorship leading up to the presidency, and that's it. So we have a hyper-focused mission statement. But within, um, or, like, within our organization, we mm-hmm. – um, 
I work with documentaries all the time too. So it's kind of fun. We, even though I work at the Jimmy Carter library, when the RBG documentary came out, the notorious mm-hmm. RBG, we worked on that one because he, um, she was one of the first female judges appointed, mm-hmm. um, to the federal courts and he appointed more female judges than any other president. So oh, it's wow. something kind of interesting that we were able to kind of help. Um, and so sometimes you'll be surprised at who kind of pops up in the archives or mm-hmm. who's in a photograph, uh, and who they were yesterday and who they are today. And that must be such an honor to be like, to me, I think that's just an amazing position, which is why I wanted to bring you on the podcast. <laughs> Cause I feel like it's something that we don't always think about. It's not in the forefront. Right. Um, you know, even when you go to the museums, like when I, I mean, I lived outside DC for mm-hmm. a majority of my life and yeah, you go to the Smithsonian, you go, to, but there's people behind the scenes that are making sure that the items and their history and their stories are told accurately as possible right. and just kind of tying our whole history together. Yeah, speaking of museums, I actually have a museum background, too. So mm-hmm. I have a master's in um, archives management and museum studies. So I work in both fields. Mm-hmm. So I've worked um, as a curator, um, an archivist, a librarian. Uh, I've worn a lot of hats over the years um, in different aspects. So I'm really familiar. We call it glam spaces <laughs> um, but with the uh, gallery, libraries, archives, and museum spaces because I've kind of like, worn many different hats. But um, archives is definitely close to my heart. So I enjoy it, but I work in a um, profession where most people are introverted and I'm not. So it's um, kind of an no, interesting, you're not. <laughs> I never have been. So, <laughs> so it's an interesting, like, um, professional working when you have a bunch of quiet folks and you're like, Hey, so, you know, <laughs> what were you interested in this back when we were in undergrad? It was this something that like spoke to how do you get involved? How do you know about these types of positions? Yeah, so I was a uh, music major in undergrad, mm-hmm. and I actually got a vocal injury. Um, so Katrina hit my senior year of college yep. at Mary Baldwin. So I ended up post- postponing my senior recital to like the next year. So I mm-hmm. graduated a year later, mm-hmm. which we, we graduated graduate at the same time, but I was supposed to be a year earlier. <laughs> Super senior. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so I stayed and finished school then, but mm-hmm. I, I received a vocal injury. So I went home. I was going to sing, but Katrina hit, and so everything was closed, and um, yep. I went home and uh. One of my friends was working to restore some artwork and I helped her um, because like there were no jobs at the time and I was just kind of like bored. So Mm -hmm. I kind of fell into that and I couldn't sing at the time. So I couldn't sing. I had a whole year without music, Hmm. which is funny when I've been a musician my whole life. So it kind of made me reevaluate, okay, if I can't do this, what do I do with the rest of my life? Right. And I really fell in love with um, art preservation and like working in that field Mm -hmm. and then um I found out I liked working behind the scenes with collection management and solving problems Mm -hmm. I once worked in a museum and someone spit bubble gum on a Jackson Pollock painting and like the alarms went off and it was all like dramatic and because it was insured for like 20 million dollars and so we were trying to figure out how to get this gum off this painting and um how okay so how do you get gum off a painting just you know (laughs) well you know you want something cold and then we have mm-hmm. spatulas and different spackles, so you can just mm-hmm. kind of scrape it. And then we had to bring it to a conservator to kind of fill the color back in. So sometimes you have different things like that that happen. So we're trained in all sorts of different um, mediums. Right now, if you come to my job, I work in cold storage usually because I'm mainly for Jimmy Carter. I work with film mm-hmm. and the audio visual materials. So I always joke that I bring Jimmy from the 70s and 80s to today. So I um, yeah. usually have a puffy... Uh, refrigerator like one of those giant refrigerator jackets uh-huh. <laughs> so I look like a penguin walking around the office so you're literally like jacket. in the cold storage because I have like a it. meat locker mm-hmm. yes Ooh. because uh <laughs> film is explosive um I don't know if you saw that like the things that scare archivists but cellulose like ni- nitrate film can explode and so um hold, hold on one second films are explosive where have I, I mean 
Well, old film can be explosive. Old films. Okay. Yeah. So um, if you're an archivist preserving old things, it's um, better to keep them in a cold, stable condition that we don't um, spontaneously combust. Yeah, please and don't. sometimes they have reactions with like wood shelving. So you don't want wood shelving because it emits gases. So um, usually you want to have treated shelving, um, like, a, you know, like a treated metal or something mm-hmm. like that. So there's a lot that goes into the environment, making sure the environment's not too hot or too cold. So you have all these different like um, aspects that you learn about how to store things. And so mm-hmm. um, when I worked at the museum and I was helping my friend with the artwork, it just, mm-hmm. I fell in love with like, kind of like problem solving like how do I do this and um I became really good at cleaning up things that get wet with mold because I'm New Orleans you know so everything's (laughs) moldy down there I feel like (laughs) (laughs) there's always a flood so I'm really good at cleaning if you ever have an issue with mold call me I will help you out but um I will (laughs) I'm really good at that (laughs) and so from that working with those materials I just kind of fell in love with um you know preserving history and like um making sure that this because when you think about uh, going through Katrina it's like almost like the whole city or whole history just was washed away mm-hmm. and so trying to unearth that and keep it alive I just kind of fell in love with that aspect of it and being proud from to be from New Orleans and mm-hmm. that's how I kind of fell into all this so like you know like a roundabout way to tell the story no and, <laughs> and I think so, that that's a beautiful way because are they still preserving like still working on things from Katrina that were damaged then to make sure they're preserved most of the items are were at least cleaned now so um okay. at least with the um the places that I worked in different mm-hmm. um institutions that I helped while I was there so most of the items were cleaned and they're stored now but um, sometimes you're still working on budget because different places have different budgets Mm -hmm. Um, luckily um, when I worked at the New Orleans Public Library the archive is actually in the basement of the library which Mm -hmm. New Orleans probably shouldn't have a basement but luckily when Mm -hmm. Katrina hit it was all those items were spared and you're talking about original documents in French and Spanish wow super old documents um, from like you know New Orleans is 300 years old so Mm -hmm. super old um documents that you don't want to have destroyed so and if you're not familiar with new orleans uh it, it is true that all and cemeteries all the bodies are placed above ground correct mm-hmm. most of them not below ground yes. due to uh a lot of flooding and just weather and things like that so i'm surprised that all the archives were underneath or below ground well not all of them but that particular one that particular is. one okay yeah. mm-hmm. i'm glad they and were so- saved yeah, they were like spare, like ironically, like the water was just kind of around, but didn't get those particular archives. Wow. So it was nice to kind of work with that collection. So yeah, it's just kind of a strange um, roundabout way to kind of get into this profession. But that's mm-hmm. how I became an archivist from like, you know, just those experiences and being a singer your whole life and not being able to sing. So it was like, okay, what do I do with the rest of my life? And I think it's I just, also I feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. It was mm-hmm. a testament too, because you did something your whole life that you obviously thoroughly enjoyed and had a passion. And then, you know, you couldn't do that. And so this mm-hmm. is kind of how you found like a new passion not that you're not so passionate yeah. about music, but it's just, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yes. I found a roundabout way of kind of, and I still, you know, sometimes occasionally if we have an art opening or something, I might show up in a ball gown and sing to open up the, you know. <laughs> well, next time I have my art exhibit, which is never, I will be having you come in your ball gown and sing with your beautiful voice. <laughs> well, I'll just show up. I'll give Maddie a tiara and we'll just kind of go for it. You know? oh, you, as long as you dance with the arms up, she's good. That's right. <laughs> so she can give me an intro. She, she, she will. She'll be your backup dancer. Um, what is your favorite I guess area you've worked on or project, if you can say something that was, or something you unearthed that maybe um, we didn't know about a certain history or, you know, something like that. One of my favorite, I guess it's a weird story, but it's a family history story. When I worked in Austin, mm-hmm. um, 
was with a, a found a, a lawsuit from a woman who sued her husband for ten thousand dollars, and this was in um, nineteen hundred. And it was strange because it was a lot of money. Number one, and it was a black woman. So I was kind of I was like you know I was like huh. So mm-hmm. I was like ten thousand dollars a black woman suing her husband like you know what's going on? Yeah. And it was published in a paper which was I and it was in the paper every day like a TMZ sort of event chronicling the story how, how it was going. Right. And so I did this whole um, journey where I like researched the family and found out this really fun kind of like crazy family story. And I ended up meeting one of the relatives who came into the library. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you know um, why you ended up in Chicago? And she said, I always wondered. I had no idea. So I gave her the whole family history and it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. And they enjoyed the um, research so much that they invited me to come up and talk to the, the presentation for their family. Um, on the history. <laughs> so they had a family reunion and I got to come up and do a presentation for them on their genealogy and how the family ended up there. But it was kind of this fun story um, yeah. where the, it was kind of like a TMZ, like salacious uh, story for the time. But the, you know, the old Model T cars, the Ford Model mm-hmm. T cars, anyone could get in the car and drive it. So one way that you were able to tell like, this is Vicky's car, not Latoya's car, is that mm-hmm. it would have your name on it. And yeah. so... We, they, they knew it was the um, husband's car because it was parked in front of her friend's home. And so it was a church scandal, like between the two churches. And so the mm-hmm. carriage was at this other woman's house. And so I just thought it was this interesting. I don't know. I was like, you know, so I just started reading. I was like, what is this lawsuit about? So I did all this research about the court records. And so it turns out that the husband left the wife and went to someone else. And like then um, this was a big scandal for this time. And they were like two prominent families with all this money. And he owned like half of like the city. And so it was just this interesting tale and how she ended up in Chicago and she remarried and um, had another family and um, just the whole details as as to why they left. But it was very like, you know, kind of like Mari, Jerry (laughs) Springer-ish. Now, the quarry minds want to know, did she get her $10,000? She didn't. Actually, she sued him for breach of contract. Um, I forgot the way it was worded, but it was like for the um, the miss... uh, misappropriation or like the miscommunication of affections like that he falsely um led her to marry him so she was Mm. suing him for being felonious because had he Mm. been an honest man she would not have married him so it was like a breach of contract lawsuit and i thought it was so interesting that is so interesting (laughs) and he inherited her father's business because she couldn't own it being a woman at the time so it went to Mm. him so she sued him back for the business and um she lost that lawsuit, but she got the money back for the transfer of affection. So it's an interesting little lawsuit. And uh, there's a whole lot of history there. That's, that's a whole other podcast. But anyway, it was yeah. very, a very like a fun, interesting family story. <laughs> that is. And I think when anyone does their genealogy, I know we've done it for my, um, my dad's side, so the uh, Tenbrook mm-hmm. side. It's interesting. Like just see things, especially years and years ago of what happened. And, you know, just those little nuggets of stories are um yeah. very interesting now yeah. Timbrook is that dutch it is okay i thought i've had a feeling it was but i was like let me it, ask <laughs> it is dutch so uh abraham Timbrook founded albany new york so oh, they wow. have like the Timbrook uh <laughs> museum up there so i've been mm-hmm. to that and when i went there and signed the guest book uh they made me take a photo in front of like every single person it was like, <laughs> like celebrity day um but he did you. that and founded the state bank of new york Mm-hmm. Um, he came over. I mean, I, I don't know the research as much as my mom does. Came over of all the prominent people. Yeah. Um, but one of the other Tembrooks was um, a horse jockey. And I can't remember which one, but something Tembrook. And um, 
when I lived in Savannah, they have uh, the weeping time, which happened uh, March 2nd and 3rd, which is the largest slave trade to ever happen. And it was held at Tenbrook Racetrack. Oh, and yeah. it was named for the jockey, but it was not the gentleman. It was just, that was just the place it was held. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the longest time, because I didn't look into it, I was like, is that, was that our family? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was someone else was uh, the one, sell- it was his slaves he was selling. Uh, to pay off a debt, which just yeah. happened to be a Tenbrook racetrack. But we, um, I remember going to a talk with Dr. Otis Johnson, the former mayor of Savannah, who was also a historian. He has, you know, he <laughs> was a tenured professor at Savannah State University on the weeping time, because I just wanted to learn more. I mean, um, and I, to me, it was funny. I would say a few of my friends mm-hmm. and um, listening to it, he kept mispronouncing Tenbrook. And one of my girlfriends was like, and, um, with mm-hmm. three or four of my African-American friends uh, for this lecture. And they're like, should we tell, should we raise our hand? Tell them you're saying it wrong. I said, I'm good. Like I'm just here to learn. Tenbrook <laughs> sounds fine. Um, but it's really, it was, it, I think more people need to hear this history. And I'm appreciative of people like you who archive it and preserve it because listening to journal entries from the weeping time and, you know, as much first count hand experience that I could listen to mm-hmm. is really um, humbling and life-changing to hear um, of what people were doing back in the day. And it was just, um, yeah, it was interesting to kind of dive into it a little bit because it was right there in Savannah. Yeah. And I, you know, the name was on the racetrack, but it was just, um, you know. Yeah, we work with people of all ages from like as young as Maddie's age to seniors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can go and talk to, um, and, and like senior citizens going homes. And it, that's always mm-hmm. a lot of fun because mm. when you go like to do the community centers, they know so much of the history yeah. from being from the area. And so it's always nice to do that. And I always like to do oral histories with uh, people of a certain age. So I catch all my family members, like when they get about like 60 and I'm like, Hey, let's talk. So. <laughs> and I think <laughs> and that's great though, that. because like yeah. so much it gets passed down. And like, I always make fun of my mom because I have a bunch of family heirlooms that they've given me over the years, but she always puts on the back, like who it originated from the year and like who this person is and like tapes it on with a, um, a index card, like on the back of whatever. So I have it, but it's nice to like, I didn't appreciate it before, but now understanding, like, I think that's important to know the history. Yeah, it. because if it gets the box gets cast aside and maybe left in a attic or something, mm-hmm. and maybe someone moves in thirty years from now, at least they'll yeah. know who's on the photographs. Exactly. So it kind of helps give that information. Yeah, and I think it's just neat just to see for uh, historically to find out our mistakes so we can be better in the future. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. kind of in some of those uh, vicious cycles, and you know, continue the good things. So yeah, it's exactly. a lot of fun though. But yeah, kids really enjoy it too, and we get the, we get everyone interested. I've um had kids do things where teachers come in and go, I'm surprised they're doing that. And, you know, mm-hmm. but I'll tell them a story and kind of like, you know, get them involved and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, make it interesting. And they really, there's a lot of um, fun history in the, the making it personal for children. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about um, people who are enslaved. Um, mm-hmm. I went to a school of middle school and I found the record of a girl who was 13 and I was teaching um, mm. a history lesson for an eighth grade class. And she actually was sold right on the spot where we were in the cafeteria mm-hmm. where the presentation took place. Mm-hmm. And so I t- uh, gave him a whole story about this woman in our history. And it was kind of powerful because one of the men who worked there, it actually ended up being his great grandmother. Oh, wow. And so it was so, he just burst into tears. And um, mm-hmm. it was such a, like, a powerful presentation. And all the kids were like, whoa, you know. And the teacher called me not so long. She said, the kids were, ta- they talked about that for forever. They still mm-hmm. talk about that. So it was a lot of fun doing, you know, things like that where it kind of sticks with people. 
And I think it does the the talk I went to with mm-hmm. um, Dr. Johnson, reading the journals and hearing um, how much people went for, you know, and just mm-hmm. like the words used back then to describe another human mm-hmm. being, um, was super impactful. Um, and I can ima- I imagine more impactful for the Black community uh, to hear that. And I think it's um, yeah, I it was a great. For me, it was a great learning experience and how he presented, yeah. very similar to how you did, to really just hearing firsthand accounts and making it personable. Right, because when we get um, to 1870, especially for African-Americans, it's hard to trace back your history mm-hmm. because um, people don't realize it turns from records for people to property records. Yeah. So sometimes you have to look at property records to find out the history and because, you know, we weren't viewed as human beings, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things where you have to switch and kind of think, okay, let's look at the tax records, real estate records and property. And it'll kind of give you the information you're looking for. Can you say that one more time? Cause I think that line is key for people to hear, especially uh, people of non-color to hear it switch from. Oh, from being a person, actually having a record, like a actual, a, a human being um, mm-hmm. to being a property, a piece of property. Mm-hmm. And so you look at chattel records and, um, you know, real estate records, any type of tax records. And unfortunately, sometimes you would just see a tick mark and that's a person who, you know, mm-hmm. you want to know who that person is. But unfortunately, sometimes a lot of the people aren't named. So there's a lot of history that's lost, mm-hmm. especially when, you know, names were taken away, languages were taken away. Yeah history is taken away families were sold to different you know areas so mm-hmm. there's a lot of history that's lost and that um, you know you're trying to fill those gaps in and I think thank you for repeating that because I think that needs to be said for <laughs> uh for people to hear and really digest that because no one should be considered property um, right and you know even today um, we still deal with you know some of those ramifications from um all of this history um, so sometimes when you know, like the more you know, the kind of more you understand about, you know, where different people, different groups are coming from. Mm-hmm. I think that's important too, just for these archives and items that are preserved can help bring in deeper conversations for learning, which I think is important for um, people to be open to listening to everyone's history, not just yeah. their own. So right now, um, part of my work with archives, like in a profession, is making them more welcoming spaces mm-hmm. um, because they've, we've kind of been viewed as kind of like elitist, um, you know, mostly, um, you know, white institutions. Mm-hmm. And so um, even though there are not that many archivists of color, um, we have a few, we're getting larger, but um, it's just making those, you know, diversifying the history, the mm-hmm. historical records so that we have more voices added to it. I so, think that's great too. So yeah, you have more perspectives. On. Right. Too. And um, and also two more researchers because there we have all these records, all this history that mm-hmm. we're preserving. But unfortunately, we can't research it all. Yeah. Uh, so um, having being able to have more records that people can research, I always encourage people to come in and see us and write and visit. And the archives are open to everyone, even children. So I always tell people like you can come at any age and mm-hmm. don't be afraid to come in and like approach us because um, sometimes it can be kind of scary coming in for the first time. So walk us through that experience, because I know my mom used to love to go to the archives and, you know, Mm -hmm. what have you in D.C. and do that. I have not been. Um, So what would it look like (laughs) if they go to an archive or ways to get kids all the way up to adults involved with learning more about their history and our history as a whole? Sure. So an archive is different from a library in that um, everything that we have usually is unique or one of a kind. Mm -hmm. So you can't bring in ink pens and things like that. So we kind of take away a lot of things. Um, Unfortunately, we have to ask you, do you have this? Do you have that? Um, Sometimes, depending on the place, you can't bring um, any coats in. 
uh, just because uh, people can sometimes take records. You know, if you have a laptop, sometimes you have to open it up. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit more, we kind of check things a little bit more. Um, all the archives I've worked in have always had cameras mm-hmm. um, because some of the records can be very valuable. And also, um, you know, again, on the on, maybe the only one of its kind. Yeah. And so um, those are just interesting, like little tidbits with archives. Um, also, you're allowed only a certain amount of items at a time. And uh, one box on a table, usually one folder at a time. Mm-hmm. You can't mix up, you know, just take everything out um, right. just because it helps us be able to see better what you have. Mm-hmm. Some places are formal with the interview, like ours has a formal interview where I work now, where you have to come in and we have to like take you into a separate room and it's very like formal. Mm-hmm. But once once we finish that part, it's the same process like every other archive. So, And do people have to wear white gloves for certain items? For the items I work with, yes, um, mm-hmm. because the AV items do need the white gloves. But regular paper, um, that depends on the archive. Sometimes it can make the grip more difficult, mm-hmm. but your fingers normally have oils on them. Right. So sometimes, depending on what you're working with, it can kind of get on the materials if it's being handled by multiple people. So that's mm-hmm. why some places have gloves. So it depends really on the age of the object. The Jimmy Carter Library, where I work now, the paper's pretty new. So it's not like um, very old paper. So you don't have to wear gloves with those items, but with mm-hmm. AV items, like the stuff I work with, you do. And what is a- AV? Oh, I'm sorry, audio, audio visual. Okay, that's what I thought. I just wanted to be yeah. sure <laughs> No problem. So like um, I have negatives, like photo negatives, black mm-hmm. and white color, those sorts of things. You do have to wear gloves with those. Are there a lot of people that come in? I just watched, I can't remember, a podcast or some documentary with um, conspiracy theories of like how um, different events in history have happened and they're pulling up. Old, do you have like conspiracy theorists that come in for like- There's a- <laughs> I think oh, like JFK <laughs> shooting was like, that's the one that I was watching something on and the people are like pulling out photos of this lady that was from Russia that was on this, like, or whoever it was, but those types of. Yeah. Like, so we do kind of get a lot of every place I've worked has had um, at least a few people who are kind of like more paranoid. Um, I hate mm-hmm. to say paranoid, but like, you know, they're conspiracy theorists. Yeah. And so usually um, sometimes it's a matter of like the, archive is open to all yes. so if you're coming in to do research it doesn't matter what it is mm-hmm. you can do your research but if it becomes where you're thinking we're holding something or hiding something sometimes we um had an issue with a man who had a mental um illness mm-hmm. when i was in austin and he um came in and like threw things one day and thought the mm-hmm. archive was hiding stuff from him and um so that was a little scary. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. That was like my scariest encounter because I thought he was going to hit us or something. I didn't know what he was going to do. Yeah. So we had to call security, like, you know, and get him, calm him down and get him out and stuff like that. So. Wow. I just, I just think it's fascinating that there's so much history that's being preserved and anyone can have access to hear everyone's stories. You can. And that's the one thing that we're trying to just let people know that anyone can come in. And so we're just trying to make the spaces more welcoming and inclusive to all. And, and how so, have you guys um, been doing that? Well, one thing too, um, and I noticed this at my last place in particular, was that sometimes when researchers of color would come in, they were treated differently than white researchers were. Mm-hmm. And I had coworkers that didn't even realize they were doing that. Right. And sometimes as a person of color, unfortunately, like if I go in a store tomorrow, it, I might be watched, even though I have, you know, um, have money I mean there to buy I think something but sometimes you can be watched or a profile while you're in a store mm-hmm. so sometimes for people of color when they come to an archive and you're saying hey can I check your computer like your laptop to see if you took anything can I take your coat like you know can I like take the pins it feels like you're policing and right. so people of color are sometimes 
unfortunately accustomed to dealing with that mm-hmm. i try to handle it in a way that is humane so that yeah. they don't feel like so we you know you don't feel like you're not welcome right. and so i just told them like when you're doing that make sure everyone's welcome and sometimes i noticed that i've noticed in the past that co-workers have kind of watched people of color a little bit more closely mm-hmm. than they have with other researchers and so mm-hmm. um it's just something that we should be watching technically you watch everyone <laughs> yeah <laughs> because you know, it's the only item, so everyone should be watched, but it shouldn't mm-hmm. be where you're watching one group more than the other. So just that implicit bias that we have that we don't realize that we mm-hmm. have. Um, and breaking down those barriers, especially in the research room too. Because um, in an archive, it can be kind of scary when you come in for the first time, you know, and you're not really sure. And, mm-hmm. you know, you feel like you're bothering people if you ask a question sometimes. And so just try to like, you know, break those barriers down so people don't feel like they're bothering you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important too, because everyone has some implicit bias from your own history, from your own experiences, you're all good at it, but trying to minimize that and just learn more and be more opening and inclusive is important. Right. So we've been doing trainings with staff so they can understand that. Mm -hmm. And another thing too, that we've been working on is uh, paid internships for people who are uh, like approaching the profession. One of the reasons why a lot of students of color sometimes um, don't fall into this career sometimes as a first choice is because a lot of the internships are not paid. Mm-hmm. And so when I was at Mary Ball, when I don't know if I ever told you, you probably didn't know this, but I had three jobs when I went to school. I knew you and hustled, I paid, didn't know it was three. Mm-hmm. I had three jobs and I paid for school, um, mm-hmm. three jobs. And that was a lot. And, um, yeah. you know, still trying to make a good grade point average and not die, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have a social life and enjoy the college experience, but yeah. I paid for college on my own. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, there were a lot of internships that I got the internship, but I couldn't take it if it wasn't paid because I needed mm-hmm. the money. Yeah. And so, um, you have a lot of students who are in that bracket. So because I remember, you know, cause it was just two years ago, you know, when we yeah. were, we, we, still, we, we are young, let me <laughs> it tell just, you. It was just two years ago. So <laughs> since, it was, since it was in recent memory, yes. I try to make sure that, you know, we have um, some stipends available for students so they don't always have to work for free or housing mm-hmm. options. So just looking at things like that, that um, we could be better about. And I think that's great too, because majority of students, mm-hmm. are at least working somewhere on financial right. aid and paying for themselves, but also I mean, internship is such an amazing foot in the door and to exactly. learn and make sure this is what you want to do. Um, but if you, you know, if someone's not paying your rent and you don't have the money to pay your rent or food, I mean, you need to live too. And so a lot of times I feel like it's a pick between what you're passionate about or what's going to pay the bills. Because if you don't have that, um, for you, it's, you know, it's hard. I just left as a scholarship chair. Um, it was my last term uh, for mm-hmm. one of the professional organizations I'm in. And even though COVID happened and the conference was canceled, we met and I thought we should still give the scholarships away to the students yeah. because they could probably use the money. And so um, we still gave the scholarships away anyway. And when I called, they were so happy, like, mm-hmm. yes, like, you know, like, or, oh my gosh, like they were so grateful because it was something they really needed, mm-hmm. um, especially being on a student's budget. And then, you know, maybe you're not working or maybe you're like, I was a waitress. I think I always to work at Mill Street. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was a waitress in college. So, you know, Street. I know the bread girl was so good, but oh, I used to make all that butter and stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> I would go in between choir practice and bake bread and uh, go to choir, smell like onions and stock. But anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> in between or whatever, I would like run up the hill and go back to work, you know, go back to oh, class I, or whatever. And, uh, for those that don't know, so Mary Baldwin <laughs> is on a huge hill. It's a private women's college in yes. Virginia. <laughs> And they nicknamed it Mighty Big Calves because by the time yes. you're like you're up and down this huge hill all over campus, it's a small campus, but like where you work then was even further downhill in downtown. You had to walk 
all, I mean, whew, I'm tired just thinking yes. about that. <laughs> I know. And like, we were well conditioned at the time. If I went back to campus tomorrow, I'd probably pass out. But at the yeah. time I could do it, you know? So Not anymore, you know, I can't. Maybe I can get my Baldwin calves back, but you know. <laughs> but I, uh, at the time we worked really hard. So, mm-hmm. you know. It happens. But yeah, it's just one of those things that we're working on with the profession. So um, I encourage anyone who's interested in history to to definitely pursue archives as a passion. It's never too late. A lot of people do it as a second career. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm always here as a resource for people if they have questions about it. And I will definitely drop that in the show notes um, as well so people can know. And then do you guys have volunteers? I know some people can volunteer and that's how they gain experience, like a few hours or their volunteer opportunities for this sort of career or not really? There are a lot of volunteer opportunities for the career. Um, For my particular location, there aren't as many just because you have a a lot of checks, um, a lot of vetting that has to, uh, like a big process for that. But um, there are a lot of opportunities if you go like your local library, local history section, um, Mm -hmm. different organizations, different groups, universities have archives as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are what we call loan arrangers. (laughs) And so loan arrangers are archivists that usually have a whole um, archive, but they work, they do the whole thing by themselves. And um, I've been a loan arranger before and it's a lot of work. And so you are desperate for volunteers. So if anyone comes yeah. and says, can I volunteer? You're like, yes. Yes, come help <laughs> me with this whole section. Please, yes. Because you're only one person. There are eight hours in a day. Um, you yeah. can only get so much done. So if you think about trying to digitize something, mm-hmm. processing a collection that has not been touched maybe, mm-hmm. um, dealing with those sorts of things. Uh, and sometimes it could be like an episode of Hoarders too. Um, my, my job in Austin, we used to actually make house calls for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So sometimes we'll go to your house. Like, um, unfortunately, if someone passed away, mm-hmm. you might get called and say, hey, Latoya, I've got this stuff. Can you come take a look at it? I don't know if y'all mm-hmm. want it, you know. And um, it was kind of like a, a weird, um, kind of like sobering experience mm-hmm. where you're going to someone's home. And you'd be, you'd be surprised at how much you cry doing this job, too. <laughs> well, Not in a bad way. But well, it's just like, it's you know, a lot of emotions with it. So. And it could be in a bad way, too, because it's reading people's pain and seeing people's pain um, and just hearing their stories haven't been told yet could be, you know, cathartic and but also, you know, painful, too, to hear people would go through for certain er in certain areas of history. Right. Like we had an abortion recipe that was passed down from mother to daughter. Um, in mm. Austin, when I worked in the um, archive there, um, and it was, you know, from black, a black family passed down so that the daughters didn't have to have enslaved children. Mm-hmm. So it was a way to kind of not hopefully pass that legacy on. Mm. So just things like that, when you kind of read it, you're like, wow, you know, um, it's, you know, really sobering. It is. And I hope that after people hearing this, um, do visit in archives or at least museums and a lot of museums now are doing, and it was kind of different but same still mm-hmm. history preserving um have a lot of things they're doing via social media or online yes. and they have things you can <laughs> download for your kids to teach them mm-hmm. um i know my favorite personal museum well one of my favorite museums um the two is uh the uh oh my, why am i blanking on it um not in Fra- and frank house is amazing but in dc yes. that um the Jewish Museum, that's not what it's called. Why am I blanking on The Holocaust Museum. Thank you. Yes. yes, the Holocaust <laughs> Museum. Um, I mean, I've been to that probably like five times ever since I was little, and it is sobering. And, I mean, it is a hard gut to see the actual hair, the actual shoes. Yes. Um, and how everything is beautifully preserved. But then also the African-American History Museum. 
I've only been there once and I wish I had more time. We spent half a day and it was just on a whim. We were up for hurricane evacuation and to my parents' house. And I wish, I mean, I could have easily spent three days in there. Um, yeah, I didn't make it there yet. I went to the Native American Museum, but that one wasn't finished yet last time mm -hmm. I was in DC. So the, hopefully on my next trip up, that'll be, I'll get to go see that one. So. And I was easily two days in there. I could have spent, um, it was, yeah, it was definitely moving. And I feel like everyone should learn about others' history and not just their own. Right. Because mm -hmm. um, it kind of gives you that experience of how we all interact in this world together mm -hmm. and how we all have different experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, and it's not that, you know, like that one, you know, because some people kind of sometimes feel like, you know, if they're being forced to learn about something or, you know, mm -hmm. have feelings like that. But it's just a matter of like just kind of giving a different perspective, like, mm -hmm. oh, that person may feel this way because they have this history of this mm -hmm. or, oh, that person feels that way because of this. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just kind of helps to kind of, you know, have that perspective and that empathy when it comes to learning about, you know, other people's history. I think it's important too, because when you walk through a museum, regardless, art museum, history mm -hmm. museum, everyone's going to look at what the exhibit is differently and feel differently from it. Uh, or look at a painting and I would be like, I have no clue what it is. It's just splatters on a thing. Right. Uh, and someone else would be like, that's the most beautiful. It's water lilies and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to people's history, I feel like that's important to also recognize when you're at looking at something that my experience looking at the history is totally different than yours than this person's and that person's and really just um, being empathetic while you're there, I feel like it's important too, because it's definitely, um, right. yeah. Because in community archives in Austin, we had a mm -hmm. Latinx community archivist and also an Asian American community archivist as well. Mm -hmm. So all three of us work with communities of color um, with the different histories. But the Asian archivist, um, she talked about how um, having all the so many different languages and so many different religions and different groups mm. that may or may not interact with each other and how mm -hmm. difficult that particular job was because different communities may not talk to this particular person because you're from this background. Mm -hmm. And so she was saying it was, you know, kind of a difficult experience with collecting the histories because establishing trust was, um, you know, something that she really had to work hard at. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for every, I mean, establishing trust across the board is where we're going to yes. get um, a brighter future. But that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so any last parting items you want to talk about your position or your love for it or a cool fact? <laughs> um, just my favorite thing about archives is that um, there's always something new every day. Mm -hmm. No two days are the same. I really enjoy being creative with history and um, working with all different age groups. Mm -hmm. And I love... Um, just kind of being able to use all my different skills to kind of uh, do this job. I think it's a lot of fun and I wish I would have known about it sooner. So I always um, like to go out and tell people about the work that we do mm -hmm. and different ways that you can get involved because people say, oh, you majored in history or you're not gonna have a job or, you know, I majored in music or you're not gonna have a job. You know, how people mm -hmm. sometimes do if you have an artsy degree, that, but there's so many different- arts education. Right, that, what are you you, that liberal arts education, <laughs> what are you gonna do? Work, you know, you'll be poor for the rest of your life. But anyway, there are different like, um, <laughs> you know, avenues and different mm -hmm. um, paths you can take for a different degree. So I always like to talk to people about that because there are a lot of different, um, you know, venues and there's a lot of money available um, for mm -hmm. students if they're interested. So, and people who are, even who aren't students who are yeah. thinking about it. So yeah, I always just tell people just get involved and it's not something that um, 
you know, if you don't want to go like to school to do it, you can, like you said, volunteer. We always mm -hmm. can use volunteers. And there's just so much that you can learn as well. And we're always super grateful for volunteers because most of the time, most um, places are unfortunately underfunded. Mm -hmm. So, um, and just kind of getting people to pay more attention to history get involved in your local community and see if maybe they might need some money for something or mm -hmm. need help. Usually that's always the case. Yes. <laughs> My last job, I used to have a $500 budget every year. That was it. And you'd be surprised at what I did with that money. Uh, but I did that by creating mm -hmm. partnerships with people who did have money. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a big thing in life, partnerships, <laughs> partnerships. And hopefully oh, yeah. <laughs> my mom will be listening to this podcast by the end and she can, she, they're retired now. So mom, go volunteer at your local uh, <laughs> archives and preservation. Use those analytical skills and all your yes. research challenging <laughs> for good use. Um, yes, we can use your help. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like to end with like kind of like a this or that, but in this situation, I kind of just want to ask like maybe two to four questions and it's like quick, whatever comes first to your mind. Okay. Okay. Um, favorite time period in history? Hmm. I guess the current time period. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, favorite uh, historical figure? Hard. Um, Ida B. Wells. Ooh. Uh, for those that don't know, because I know we had the Ida B. Wells Society at um, Mary Baldwin, explain who Ida B. Wells is. Ida B. Wells was a journalist and she worked with um, anti-lynching crusade. She was also um, a founder of the NAACP mm -hmm. and um, a woman who was really ahead of her time who didn't always get the shine that she deserved. So I'm happy to see her being recognized today. Yeah, I like that one. And oh, what was my third question? Oh, if you could have coffee, lunch, dinner, breakfast, whatever, with five people at your table, all they all have to be passed away and gone. They're being preserved. <laughs> who would it be? Okay, Ida B. Wells, okay. definitely have to pick, like, you know, find out more about her. Mm -hmm. Let's see, um, Frederick Douglass, I have a lot of questions mm -hmm. for him. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, mm -hmm. uh, Gandhi, have some mm. questions. And Jane Austen, because I love Jane Austen. <laughs> That's a great table you have going on. Well then, well, then I'll add a, a su sub-segment to that question. What would be the first question you'd ask for everyone at your dinner party or brunch, whatever, to answer? Like one question for the group. What's one thing that you wanted to do in life that you weren't able to? Ooh, I like that question. And I hope through your preservation that we'll be able to hear their voices and, um, you know, be able to help rechart the course for future years. Right. That's what we hope. So fingers Perfect. crossed. Well, I so appreciate today. I learned a ton and am excited. I need to do more research on the Tembrooks and I guess my mom's side too, the Amatos um, yeah. and just learn more about history and kind of the neat nuggets of stories that you, I'm sure you get to hear every day. Right. Well, let me know if you have any questions. You know how to find me. So, oh, you know, girl, I'll be hitting you up. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Latoya, for being here today. And I hope everyone enjoys this episode of Naptime Chats. And thankfully, Madison made it through the whole episode without crying her head off. So we're good to go. Go, Maddie, go. And I'll be putting some information in the resources. That's it for today's Naptime Chats. To be featured on a future episode, please visit my website, www.victoriabucher.com and navigate to the podcast tab. Cheers to making naptime fun, informative, and most importantly, 
for you. Have a great day, Mama.